This Boss Barista episode is brought to you by Ernex. If you've worked in the coffee industry, you probably know Ernex well. You've used their products to clean your equipment. You've attended an event that they've supported. You're probably even using Kefiza at home to clean your pots and pans. One of Ernex's latest advances is a range of environmentally friendly cleaners called BioCaf. BioCaf products are made entirely from plant and mineral-based ingredients and are fully biodegradable. They're available for both commercial and household coffee equipment, so you can use them at the cafe just as easily as you can use them at home. But Ernex is doing more than just making eco-friendly cleaners. They've partnered with people like me and several other coffee professionals to highlight some of the best sustainability efforts in the industry with the BioCaf Sustainability Series. I'm super excited to be part of this initiative and to have another platform to share my thoughts on topics like sustainability. Visit the Ernex website to read my recent piece on Onyx Coffee Labs switch to oat milk in their latest cafe and learn more about BioCaf by visiting www.ernex.com. Hey friends, welcome to Boss Barista, the podcast about workplace equity and employee empowerment in coffee and beyond. I'm Ashley Rodriguez. At some point, you've probably picked up a bag of coffee or a piece of chocolate and observed some sort of certification on the label. Maybe the certification promised that the product was made in a sustainable way or that the workers that made the product have been paid more than they were previously. Beyond these quick snippets, however, there's a lot more to these labels than meets the eye. My guest today is Vera Ispandola Rafael, a development economist working within coffee-producing countries. Recently, she wrote a paper called A Business Case to Increase Specialty Coffee Consumption in Producing Countries. Coffee is a good that's grown in one country and then is traditionally, thanks to centuries of colonialism, exported somewhere else. Globally, coffee is a $200 billion industry. And Vera was struck when she found out that only 10% of that value actually goes to the economies of the countries that grow the coffee, while 90% of that $200 billion stays in consuming countries. You can hold up that bag of certified coffee or read a story about a roaster that promises to pay more for its beans. But Vera says that the solution to low coffee wages cannot depend solely on exporting a valuable product to traditional consuming countries. Instead, she argues that people should work to grow the value of coffee within their own countries. Not only will more of the value stay within producing countries, but more of that value will also go directly to producers. Vera is based in Mexico City, And she got her start in coffee by working for Guatemala's national coffee organization called Ana Cafe. Later, she moved to UTS, a label program that certifies products grown through sustainable agriculture. You've probably seen an UTS label on something you've consumed. Now, Vera is working to find ways to raise consumption within coffee-producing countries, with the goal of raising farmers' wages and giving them more agency in the global coffee supply stream. Here's Vera. (laughs) 
So Vera, I was wondering if you could start by introducing yourself by saying your name, where you are, and what you do. Uh, my name is Vera Espindola Rafael. Um, I'm based in Mexico City. Uh, I am a developer economist. Um, and that's that. <laughs> Can you tell me about some of your first memories of coffee? Yeah, I think for, for me, um, coffee for me is linked to Guatemala. I think it's, it's there where I got acquainted with uh, coffee and maybe as many. Um, I started to work at Ana Cafe. And it for me, the memory is twofold. It's walking into the building and always smelling coffee. And for me, it's also specific visits I, uh, I made to farmers uh, in several regions during my time there. And um, the sense of, of the smelling that coffee, smelling the aroma, and, and then knowing that I was coming back from several visits to farms and entering that building again, it always reminded me of, you know, it's amazing to see how this product just goes from one hand to another, but then ultimately the hands that I see with farmers are basically in very poor conditions. Um, and how is that possible that something that I'm drinking on a daily basis is causing or is part, or at least is not helping uh, farmers getting out of those vicious, vicious poverty cycles. That's always one of those things that I got reminded of. It seems like that perspective probably informs a lot of the work that you do in coffee currently. So I was wondering if you could tell people a little bit about your background working um, in nonprofits and how you applied that to your current work in coffee now. Yeah. Um, so the reason why I started to work at Ana Cafe was because I was part of, of a research group. Uh, we were trying to understand better what was the uh, the percentage of the consumer price um, in several types of crops. So this would be vegetables, um, and this would be also uh, coffee. And um, in coffee at that time, and this was like 2005, we calculated around that 6 to 8% of the consumer price went to the farmer. And for me, it was also a motivating uh, piece to do because it allowed me to start thinking also about other commodities. So I was very interested also in cocoa and in tea. And uh, when I saw a job opening at, at Oots, um, I applied for a cocoa position. <laughs> and they said, great, but we don't see you as a cocoa person. We see you as a coffee person. So they invited me to join the team. Um, of the coffee team and at that time we were a very like small organization 12 13 people in Amsterdam and I think over I think the same around number in the rest of the countries and it was great because it allowed me to have a better understanding about not only uh, from a research end but at that time also to see okay so how can we um, how can we actually influence the consumer angle to say if you have a certified product, you will probably pay more, and that adding va added value will actually will actually reach the producer. And um, over spam, I've, I would say of eight years, 
I got to understand better the realities of coffee producers in Asia, Africa, Latin America. And I also got to understand what the roles sometimes is of a NGO as well as of other producer organizations um, and other entities within the sector, right? Um, And that really was a great opportunity to live through that. It's funny that your position at Utz could have been different. Like if you had your whole pathway could have been different if they're like, yes, you could be part of the Coco team. It's funny how like those little decisions <laughs> kind of change the trajectory of our lives because here you are now as like, I would say one of the leading thinkers in the coffee industry and a lot of, and, and it, it, I, I, I'm just always tickled by those little moments where you're like, oh wow, my whole life could have been different if um, a decision might have gone another way. Um, mm-hmm. So I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about your time at Utz, if you could explain what that is first and foremost, and how that sort of informed the way that you started approaching agriculture and the problems that you were seeing at farms that you mentioned before, being able to you know drink this beautiful cup of coffee, but knowing that the people who were producing this coffee were living in poverty or were in pretty dire straits. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So UTS is a nonprofit organization. Um, we started with um, setting up a norm, or we call that time a code of conduct, where we mentioned good agriculture practices. And these practices had to be fulfilled uh, by producers or producer organizations. Uh, different at that time was that we focused very much on those agriculture practices. And of course, we had the social and environmental. And then I think in the worst, in the time frame of three years, a lot of these social and environmental practices slowly were also um, coincided with these these pillars that all of the standards at that time uh, were putting in their codes. So at the beginning, I think there was much more of a difference. You said fair trade, much more social, you had rainforest, much environmental, and we were the ones that had focused more on the agriculture and economic piece. And uh, that was very helpful. I mean, it was helpful, but at the same time, you could also, also sense that um, there needs to be in some way more working together between organizations, especially these ones, in order to not overlap so much. Um, And I think that's why it's very good that also um, Rainforest and Oots merged at one point um, because there was a lot of overlap and and there is also a lot of overlap when it comes to implementation side. So you need to be very smart on that because the least thing what you want to do is to burden the producer. Um, And I still think that a lot of the things that we did in some way is a burden Mm -hmm. to the producer. Um, And um, I really was also of a mindset that um, in order to, in order to actually have more practices that we believe that they are sustainable, we do have definitely have much more of a bigger voice of people in the countries itself. And, um, and this is still a criticism that I have. And um, a lot of these sometimes organizations are based in not in producing countries. Um, And at the end of the day, you do miss out there on involvement and developments in a country, be it from a political point of view, be it from a social point of view. 
And you really need to factor it in also. This is not only, a, you know, these are not only labels for consumers in consuming countries. These are labels that producers in general need to understand what it means for them. Mm -hmm. I, I think I, what, what I'm sometimes sad to see is that uh, we do not value that much anymore, the, the labels. I think fair trade in that sense is the one that has, gives the biggest uh, premium to producers, but the other standards simply it's, it's very small, the, the, the value to implement the practices in terms of price-wise, it's, it's very small. Um, and I think that's, that is definitely um, sad to see that we were not able or that organizations are still not able to share that added value sufficiently and to share that the fact that we need to pay more for these products uh, to consumers. Mm -hmm. I like that you mentioned value because I think that that's going to be a theme that's going to come up over and over in this episode. What does value mean? Where does value come from and who takes value? And we'll, we'll mm -hmm. kind of define that in a minute. But another thing that mm -hmm. you discussed that I also want to highlight is that so many of the, so we define a lot of problems in global systems just in general, but that's essentially what mm -hmm. nonprofit work is. And mm -hmm. then we have organizations who come up with solutions. And of course, you know, people, people are well-intentioned with these solutions. But like you said, a lot mm -hmm. of times these solutions don't involve the people that are actually affected. So mm -hmm. what I loved about this paper that you wrote, so Vera wrote a paper, it's called A Business Case to Increase Specialty Coffee Consumption in Producing Countries. What I think is really unique about the article that you wrote, as opposed to so much of the discourse in the coffee community right now, is that it really focuses on people within producing countries. The solutions come from them because the problems affect mm -hmm. them. So I was wondering mm -hmm. if you could talk a little bit about what prompted you to write this paper. Yeah, so um, after Uts, I got this great opportunity to work for the Secretariat of Agriculture in Mexico. And a lot of people I remember were saying to me, what are you going to do at the government federal level? In Mexico, <laughs> and for me, and for me, it coincided with that belief that if I really want to, um, uh, I was living in Costa Rica for the last three years before I left Roots, and then I had a year in Amsterdam, which which really gave me gave me that reflection of you know, if I really mean to be part of a solution, I really want to be in one of these countries that I very much appreciate. And since my family lives in Mexico, um, I was, I was. Clinging to the fact that I would say, you know, that's the culture I most understand. So that's where I want to head towards back, go back to Mexico and go back to understanding of, okay, so what does it mean to live actually now here in the city? And um, what is happening in the coffee sector and in the coffee scene? And um, so I went back early 2016. And although I've always been visiting Mexico and, and mostly my family, it's never the same when you actually live in a city. It's never the same when you actually are emerged on a day-to-day -day base. Um, the struggles, the, the polit political tendencies, uh, the culture aspects. Um, and with that said, also working um, in, in, in coffee solutions for, for Mexico and not just for a region, just for the country itself. Um, a piece of this 
was then linked also with me uh, being part of the board of directors of the SEA for the first time, which for me was, you know, an unbelievable position to be in. Um, and one of the things I mentioned to Rick and, and to Kim at that time, I was saying, you know, it's it's fantastic to see that I can, sometimes I cannot believe that that I'm going through this path of, you know, going back to Mexico, feeling so happy to be back here and then also working more in coffee um, and specifically also in specialty coffee. Um, and one of the things I said, what I'm seeing in Mexico City is like so many beautiful coffee shops, um, people so passionate about coffee, um, and also talking very much about the producer, um, seeing exactly from which region it is, and um, and talking about producers that we both know. So we know which region it is, we know how far it is, we know most likely what culture bottlenecks there are, also from an economic point of view. So it was very nice to not only that the conversation doesn't stop at, oh, it's from um, Yukuiti, Oaxaca. No, we can talk more because we know more because we're citizens of this country um, and know what's around it. So the conversation becomes completely different. And so I was mentioning this to Rick and Rick was uh, intrigued. Um, Kim was intrigued and at one point I said to Rick well uh, there will be an event in, in Mexico City you need to come over so Rick came and this was the international coffee organization um, meeting that we that we organized in Mexico City in 2018 and he came over and I of course took him to a cafe which was open until 9 p.m. and he had this beautiful espresso from Michoacan and we started started to talk more about that, and I and I mentioned to him what I was seeing and I was hearing, and one of the things that I was hearing was also that producers were receiving a good price, so a really good price. Um, so we started to talk more, and then um, during an event at Let's Talk Coffee, you know, Sustainable Harvest, I got engaged in a conversation with um, IDB. International Development Bank, and they're very interested in the topic because they said one of the things that we're looking for is this circular economy aspect that we believe that needs to happen in producing countries. Or, um, I mentioned the, 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 the topic of coffee and then also um, Safe Platform was interested. Uh, I managed to get uh, funds and they said basically start to study, start doing this. And of course, this was not only for Mexico. I wanted to also understand better if this was also the case for Colombia, for Brazil. And ultimately, also Rick said, well, let's do also an East African country. Uh, in this case, it became Rwanda. Um, to do a case study, to understand if this is more widespread than we think. Mm -hmm. um, of course, these are just a handful of countries. Um, and I do believe that other countries are heading into a similar direction. Um, and it's great to see that that topic has evolved over the last three years in a very short time frame. I'm, I'm very happy to see that. Yeah, I think you're right. I think in the last couple of years, this topic has come up more and more. And even on the last episode of Boss Barista that I just aired, um, these might not be sequential. Maybe they will be. Who knows? Um, but I talked to a woman named Ana Sofia Narvaez, or, and she mm -hmm. talked to a coffee producer in Nicaragua, and they were talking about 
increasing in-country consumption there. So it's something that's on the mind of a lot of different people. And I was wondering if you could kind of really plainly state the thesis of your piece and what you were hoping to explore, because you identify a pretty major problem when it comes to how coffee is valued and how that value is distributed. Mm-hmm. One, I think one of the best studies, uh, or best, I would say, definitely ones that give me more to think about was has been the coffee barometer. And um, I was also always floored by one of the key uh, points that they were that were stating that basically ten percent of the value of coffee um, is green coffee is is for green coffee producing countries, and then seeing that that's just um, almost twenty billion of two hundred billion just floored me. Was for me. So here we are producing this, these great coffees in all these countries. And then the only reward, so to say, is 10% of this 200 billion value. So apparently 90% of the value is being produced in consuming countries. And I was, okay, so he, here I am and I, I'm thinking, how do we ever change that? Because that's just this big question. I would rather than think I'm a, I'm in a, I'm in a city here drinking my coffee and we are actually understanding the value of our coffee and other people here sitting with me in the cafe are also equally enjoying as I am of this coffee. So I wanted to really understand, okay, so how can we as a strategy for promoting in consuming, promoting coffee consumption, coffee consumption in our countries. How does that strategy translate into more value for a producer? And is that true? And that's what I wanted to understand with this study. Why was that the the thesis or the hypothesis that you came up with? Did that come from the fact that so much of the value that's created in consuming countries? that 90% value that we're talking about almost primarily has to come from roasting in cafes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, because I think at the end of the day, I'm attending these events and I'm listening about consuming trends in the U.S., other countries. And this is like a common topic in a lot of these events to share what the coffee culture is in other countries. So in the U.S. and I call them traditional consuming countries. And I'm like sitting there and I'm like, well, fantastic that this is happening. But if the value, if, if, if that value keeps being 10%, what is it for us? So what does it mean for us as producing countries? Why are we not be, being able to change this narrative? And then I was also um, trying to also understand the export markets of several countries in Central America. I cannot remember why I was doing that. Maybe nothing to do with it. But I was, I was, Understanding from the numbers that certain countries solely depend on the, the U.S., let's say 90% of their coffees goes to that market, and then the rest tr- triggers off in some of European countries or an Asian country, or some of them it goes all the way from 70 to 90%. So you're s- completely dependent on these countries to buy your product. From a, just from a business point of view, that's not really smart. Mm-hmm. 
And I was thinking, and what we do not do enough is to understand our own coffee cultures. You know, here's me trying to understand how many cafes there are in Mexico City. What are we doing in this sector? This is sure of an interest to see what is happening in my country. But there is not that much, there are no big studies about that. So what we need to change is also say, well, this is a market that we need to understand and where we need to invest in. But before that happens, we need to also make the case for this. And that is part of the of the pieces that I tackled within this research. I think one of the most, I wouldn't say damning, but I want to say damn because it's like a, not a bad word, but uh, but just like a shocking mm-hmm. word. But I think one of the very first lines that you write in this piece that I had to stop and reread again was considering these trade patterns of volatility and recent low coffee prices with no immediate long-term improvement on the horizon, producing countries must actively respond to mitigate the impact on their populations. So basically, you're saying here that the solution to low coffee prices has to come from producing countries because no one's fucking changing their behaviors, essentially, Um, which I thought was really poignant because I think, you know, we go to so many of these coffee conferences in consuming traditional consuming countries like Western Europe and the United States, and we're talking constantly about the price crisis, and yet we have not fixed it. And it is a problem that we have created. So I think it's really interesting where you're like, well, then let's scrap that that way of approaching it. And not to damn it in any way, we in consuming countries obviously need to consider how we approach coffee buying and start to correct our own behaviors. But basically, your paper is almost saying, like, we can't wait for that. Yeah, definitely. We cannot wait for that. No. That, and and, and, and that, it, it's so, the thing is, actually, it's so frustrating to see that we are dependent of. You don't want to be in that position when you're looking, actually, when you're traveling just, what, two hours from here and you see, and you see sheer poverty? Oh, come on. I'm definitely in the ones of this. Okay, so where can I do influence on? And is that even with a cup of coffee? And the answer is yes. So let's try to understand that better. And I, and I think that that it applies for many of these countries. Um, and I just saw some quotes on, on, on the podcast that's from, that is out there right now on, on, from Nicaragua. And it's completely true. You know, we are, we are not only um coffee professional we also consumers and that is very strong here we are at the end able to influence what we consume right now and even if that for me is just um three cups a day that for me is then the start but it needs to be understood also by this by by your own in your own country and you need to understand how we consume and you need to understand where we consume Um, And I do think that that's still a lot of work in progress. For me, that was also the the important piece of it. Um, I I think that we still underestimate the value of the work that's being done. Mm -hmm. And um, I see a lot of value created at the end. And I think it's great for you guys. I want to focus on creating value at this end for the producer um, and ca- fully captured by them. I think I like the way that you phrase that because I think there's something about the idea of value where we think it's a finite amount. Like we have this one coffee bean 
and it will be worth this amount and that's fixed. So it's a distribution problem. Like how do we distribute more value on one end of the spectrum versus the other? But I think what you're saying is that value is not fixed. If we can create value on both ends, like that's that's good. That's fu- that's 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 what we're trying to do. Like and that's why that idea of dependency of creating value in a totally completely different way by focusing on in-country consumption is really interesting. Um, and I don't necessarily care too much about um, thinking about uh, consuming countries because we have a, a ton of other problems that we need to address there. Um, <laughs> yeah. Lots of, lots of other things there. But I want to focus on mm-hmm. specifically what you wrote. So let's talk a little bit about how you approached solving this problem. So what did this research process look like for you? And what were some of your findings that you were surprised by or intrigued by? The most fantastic thing of doing this study is basically to uh, hear the stories behind all these coffee shops. So I had the opportunity to to uh, do several interviews in Brazil, in Colombia, and uh, and a bunch in here also in Mexico. And um, Rwanda, that was thanks to the to Sustainable Harvest, I was able to go there and, and, and present part of this study already and also have the opportunity to talk to several people um, in Rwanda and Kigali. Um, and a lot of these stories are similar. A lot of these stories are uh, people wanting to influence their immediate community by offering the best coffee of their country um, and not wanting to wait for something if you go ever to the US or Europe and then to try that fantastic coffee. No, having the tools here to serve that best coffee and then making sure that that value also goes back to the producer. Um, it's a very short supply chain. But it's a very, and it's also in terms of scale, it's small. So it's a, a small percentage of our total markets, but it's a value, valuable one. And that value, I think, uh, of understanding as consumers what it means to, to, to drink fantastic coffee here is slowly getting understood by more people. Um, that passion um, and that eagerness to do so, I saw in all of these countries. And for me, that was very motivating um, to talk about the topic. Mm. Um, the Aside from the interviews, I also uh, had several visits with producers where, we, where I interviewed them based on, you know, how do you see the national market? Uh, what is your take on this? That for me was also very insightful because that means that we have enough also room to grow and room to improve as a sector here. Um, And those issues are not the ones that are being discussed, for example, at an international event, you know, at a a very global event. These are issues very much from here. And I think that that is something that we definitely need to do something more with it, because at the moment that we leave it just in a paper or undiscussed, uh, we will not be able to grow and understand better also their point of view when it comes to um, selling their coffee on the national market. Um, what I think the most important thing that I was um, surprised by was definitely when it when the, my, the results that I processed when it comes to price 
those ones were the ones that also very much surprised me because I did think that there was very similar or competing prices going on between the national sector and then the export opportunities for producers. I did not think that in some cases there would be equal or more. And um, I say that with a smile because it's great to see that because that means that there is a different, that there is an, an additional strategy for some of the producers. Again, I say some because this is something that we need to work, work on more and understand better. Yeah, that's interesting. So there's a lot to unpack there. So I think there's, there's yeah. two things I want to identify. So first okay. off, the value of in-country consumption seems, I mean, there's a lot of reasons, but it seems twofold, two big ones. Number one, you shorten the supply chain. So instead mm-hmm. of paying an exporter, a this, a that, a this person to get coffee from one country to another, you cut that supply chain so that there are fewer people to pay. So more of the value naturally will go to the farmer. We'll go mm-hmm. to that. So that's more of a distribution issue. So if we cut out some of the mm-hmm. actors, some of that money goes somewhere else. But then there's also mm-hmm. the idea, and you mentioned this in the paper, of being able to interact with somebody face-to-face, being able to interact with somebody of your culture, being able to Mm -hmm. speak the same language, having the same cultural norms and understandings so that when you do negotiate, you're like, I understand this person. I know what their needs are. They're better able to communicate their needs to me. So we're able to agree to something on terms that we both understand. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So those two things kind of working in tandem, and that's where that kind of idea of value creation happens um, as opposed to distribution. Mm -hmm. Um, But it seems like those two big things are the reason that in-country consumption can improve the lives of farmers. Definitely, definitely. And I think um, when you touch upon the shortening of the supply chain, many people think, oh, yeah, that's a given. So what else? I think the most important thing, and it goes in hand with the second point you mentioned, is the fact that when you have a person that talks the same language, the same um, slang, sort of say, the same certain words we use, which you will not find at a Spanish school (laughs) in Antigua or even in San Cristobal, that's our pieces where you start building that relationship purely because, you know, you're, you're from the same group of people, so to say. And then when you're able to also share some insights uh, about what one knows. So there are, for example, certain people that uh, roasters um, that are also coppers and then go to producers and they have a better insight into, um, let's say, the science of coffee and what, what happens when you ferment for so many hours um, and, if, and if you do it in certain bags and when they start transferring this knowledge and when there is an interaction between them and the producer says, yeah, I did that, you know, and I saw this and then I saw that. And there is that back and forth in your own language and you don't need to shy away because this white person came to your house and you do not know him and you do not understand him. That's great to see that producers are becoming having that access to more knowledge and understanding of what they're doing, but also feeding back what they're seeing and hearing what, it, what the potential could be. And seeing also a pack of coffee with um, 
the name of their farm and seeing it in their own language, that is very valuable. Uh, I think the combination of those two things are a value that I will definitely um, hear from producers that they say, no, it's fantastic. You know, I go up to a certain town and there I see my coffee and they actually, you know, I see my name. I see, it's, it's something that it's very close by and that helps constantly in the relationship between these two parties. Early in the conversation, you mentioned the idea of a circular economy. And for, I had not heard this term actually until very recently. Um, I've been writing a lot about sustainability for some of the clients that I work for. Um, but when I read about this and when you mentioned it, 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 it just totally clicked. So the idea of a circular economy is that instead of a good or a service being handed down linearly with very little interaction between the actors, that everything is kind of almost like reused. Everything comes back full circle. People experience or interact with products and ideas over and over and over as opposed to creating waste. That's kind of the, the framework from a sustainability mm-hmm. perspective. But from a producing perspective, when you're thinking about coffee consumption inside of a country, I think the idea of a circular economy is really a powerful metaphor as well, because I imagine that reinforces quality or that reinforces what the potential of specialty is. Because when we alienate people from specialty, if we say, hey, specialty coffee only happens in traditional consuming countries, let's export all this coffee over there. There is no reinforcement of what specialty coffee is, right? Like a farmer doesn't ever get to taste it. They don't ever get to experience mm-hmm. the the fruit of their labor, um, which is kind of a cheesy, um, you know, metaphor. Mm-hmm. Their fruit of their labor, um, but um, but when things are happening within your own country, when you can drive to a coffee shop that's maybe a couple of hours away and he see your coffee and see people that you know you identify with and interact with. That, re- that, that builds that idea of what the potential of specialty coffee can be because you're able to experience your product and take that knowledge and say, oh, I tasted this in this espresso. I did this to this coffee this year. What if I do this to this coffee next year and I can get that experience again and see what happens? Mm-hmm. I wonder if that's something that you've been thinking about too. Like, What is the potential for the future of specialty coffee as in-country consumption increases? It was definitely one of the questions that was uh, asked to me multiple times because they say, well, you're talking about specialty coffee. And at the end of the day, when we look at the pyramid of consumption, um, and I would say, you know, the top of the pyramid is the specialty coffee consumption. And you have a big group of, um, you know, let's say clean coffee. That's not related to any particular um, um let's say, origin reference. And then you have at the bottom just, you know, I would say just the, the ultimate bottom of coffees. A lot of the time that happens in, in, in our countries. because I, and, and I think when we are in specialty coffee, we sometimes hope that everybody starts drinking specialty coffee. And I think it's okay that not everybody does because not every bean of coffee is is specialty coffee quality. Right. That's okay. It doesn't mean that that producer who produces coffee um, not for specialty market and barely makes it clean, it doesn't mean that he deserves a not sustainable or not prosperous life. Mm-hmm. That, totally, that's not what I'm saying. It's And we need to get that everyone who produces 
past a prosperous life. What I'm trying to say is that we need to understand in our own countries how we can influence and how can we share information and knowledge so that produce so that consumers can say in our countries, oh, I actually want that. I don't want this. I want that. And are able to understand what are the difference. And I do think that sometimes we're very far away because we have been, um, I would not say miscommunicating, but over-communicating a lot of things at the same time. And that has caused for a lot of consumers to not understand even what sometimes a very, you know, what a label is and what's the intent and what does it mean and, and what part of the supply does it cover and what does it not. We almost think that then everything is okay. And I and I understand that as well. I, as a consumer, sometimes just want to know, can I, dr- can I drink or eat this? Yes or no? Right. <laughs> and then you have seen so many labels and you're like, yeah, let, yeah, let me forget it. I will not buy anything of it. So there's a lot of... A lot of things that we can prove in terms of communication. But the thing is, my communication in my country is not the same as yours, you know? And I think that we sometimes think that we can just copy paste. We need to learn to how to communicate in our own language with our own words. And, and but learning also from other examples that have existed for over years in other countries, right? Um, I would say that the potential for specialty coffee definitely is going to grow more in our countries. I uh, would like to think that the efforts that people are making i would not i'm not referring to even to national strategies that there are several already in place and several being executed but that people are doing in their own community that that is having a great outreach and impact um and even if that's small again i think combined that's becoming bigger and that's great to see how much that is I think here in Mexico, we can go up to 10%. I think we're now at around 5%. Um, percent. I, can, I do think that we can go and go and go to 10 And I'm, And am I referring to specialty coffee in its pure sense? I'm saying, you know, over 85, you know, specific quality parameters. And we do need to think more and talk more about the sustainability of the full supply chain. I'm also referring to a living income for baristas in our own countries. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm also aspiring for. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think that there is sufficient space to grow. I was going to ask you about any final thoughts, but I feel like you really like captured a lot of big themes in that last answer. So I guess to kind of close things out, I was wondering, is there anything, I guess it, reading your paper, what would you want somebody to take away from it? What would you want somebody reading it to feel empowered to do or think critically about after reading this piece? Right. Yeah, I remember that also Brian um, also asked me a similar question. Uh, um, What I would like this paper to achieve is that there are more conversations about consumptions in our countries, Um, but not only about the consumption itself, what is needed to have producers also more tools to decide on where they want to sell their coffee. I would like to see that we start thinking and start acknowledging also the needs of our professional and our supply chains here. So that means the barista, who is uh, 
making a minimum wage and wants to be a professional. And currently the tools out there, materials out there are not always focused for them or focused on a different group of people. Um, and sometimes not even in Spanish. So I think there's a lot of to uncover there. If we really want to reach having more consumption in our countries, we do not need only to think about consumption strategies and how to reach a consumer. We need to think about our sector. We need to think about our professionals that need to be uh, have more materials, more information, more knowledge made available to them. And we need to be smart about it. Not everything needs to be, in a sense, um, a business. Mm -hmm. I refer to business making a lot of money out of these materials. Yeah. <laughs> well, Vera, thank you so much for taking time to chat with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ashley. I appreciate it. That was Vera Espindola Rafael. You pretty much have to read her paper. It's called A Business Case to Increase Specialty Coffee Consumption in Producing Countries. You can search for it on Google or you can find a link to the paper along with a full transcript of this episode by going to bossbarista.substack.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. I'm just looking for a better day. Boss Barista is produced by me, Ashley Rodriguez. You can find a transcription of this episode on my newsletter, along with an accompanying article about this episode every Thursday at bossbarista.substack.com. To support the show, you can visit www.patreon.com bossbarista. We have over 80 patrons supporting the show right now, which is incredible. And that helps keep the show alive. We pay guests through this fund, we pay for website hosting, and we make donations. Half of our patron donations are currently pledged to five different nonprofits, each at $50 a month. Asada's Daughters, the Loveland Foundation, the Native American Rights Fund, the Grocery Run Club, and the Chicago Community Bond Fund. Again, if you want to support Boss Barista, consider making a monthly donation at www.patreon.com slash Another amazing way to support the show is to share this episode with just one person, a friend, someone who you think would learn something from this episode, anybody. Sharing on social media is also a huge help, along with giving us a five-star review on Apple iTunes. As a small production, these things matter a lot. So if you can take a little time, share out some of your favorite quotes from this episode and tag us, that would be amazing we're at boss barista podcast on instagram and boss underscore barista on twitter you can also send me an email at boss podcast at gmail.com thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week <laughs>